In an interview released in March 2018, Vladimir Putin shared his thoughts about launching a retaliatory counterstrike in the event that Russia's early warning system detects an inbound nuclear missile. Yes, it would be a global catastrophe for humanity, a global catastrophe for the whole world, he said. But still, as a Russian citizen and as the head of the Russian state, I'd want to ask myself the question, what do we want with a world without Russia? Fast forward a few years to just the other week, and now Putin is accusing Washington, London, and Brussels of nuclear blackmail, claiming that high-ranking representatives of leading NATO countries have supposedly made statements about the possibility and admissibility of using weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons, against Russia. The president then added, in the event of a threat to the territorial integrity of our country and to defend Russia and our people, we will certainly make use of all weapon systems available to us. This is not a bluff. Just a few hours before I recorded these exact words, Putin announced Russia's annexation of four more regions of eastern Ukraine. But the speech was focused mainly on the evils of the West, centuries of European colonialism, decades of U.S. militarism, progressive values that he described as Satanism, and what he called the U.S.-created precedent of twice attacking Japanese cities with nuclear bombs. People are scared, which is of course the whole point of nuclear deterrence and rattling the nuclear saber in the first place. Total strangers are writing to me on social media and asking if I think nuclear war is imminent. They can't focus at work. They're scared for their kids. I'm not an expert in nuclear war, but I know what they mean. It's a question that nags at me, too. What if Russia uses nuclear weapons? Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. Today, we're continuing the theme of this podcast's third season by addressing another hypothetical, this time a grisly one, a potential Russian nuclear strike. Before jumping into today's interviews, allow me to remind listeners that Medusa now relies on contributions from people like you in our international audience to sustain our everyday operations. Millions in Russia and other countries read our news coverage. Even though they're now based abroad, our journalists obtain exclusive information about what goes on behind the closed doors of the Russian authorities. Our team delivers Medusa's most important stories in English, and we reach thousands of journalists and professionals all over the world with our special English-language newsletter and podcast. So please visit our website to make a one-time or recurring donation, and tell your friends and colleagues about our fundraising if you can. Okay, let's get to today's show. Vladimir Putin's decision to mobilize draftees for combat in Ukraine, the president's recent remarks about the precedent set in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the imminent annexation of four regions of eastern Ukraine that aren't even under the Russian military's full control right now, and Putin's vow to defend Russian territorial integrity with nukes. With all this happening, people are worried. Considering that the Kremlin has repeatedly described victory in Ukraine as essential to Russia's continued existence, it's hard to imagine a scenario where Moscow's battlefield defeats don't trip one of Putin's red lines. In this nightmare, what kind of escalation is possible, and how soon should we be hugging our kids and unfolding the lawn chairs to await Armageddon on the rooftop or in the backyard? I'm being hyperbolic. I think. That I don't know is pretty frightening. To me, at least. So I brought these questions to two experts on nuclear weapon strategy and nuclear crises. So Russia, Vladimir Putin, are using nuclear weapons the way they're usually used, which is coercively and 
as threats. That's Dr. Olga Oliker, the program director for Europe and Central Asia at the International Crisis Group in Brussels. It's very different from using them as actual weapons on the battlefield. The idea is that he's threatening nuclear use in order to deter or compel behavior from adversaries. So if you think about his nuclear threats from back in February, which were, you know, if you get in our way, there will be consequences greater than you have ever imagined. Most people thought that it was a nuclear threat. They also thought it wasn't a credible nuclear threat. So they went ahead and Western states went ahead and supplied weapons and other aid to Ukraine. What has held, though, is this unspoken threat that if there is an actual hot war between Western states and Russia, that comes with a risk of nuclear escalation, which is a terrifying thing. So because of that, we've seen no Russian attacks on NATO territory, the Russian military attacks on NATO territory. There's this Nord Stream pipeline thing, which uh, might or might not be a Russian attack. And we've seen no direct NATO involvement in the war in Ukraine. And that's because both parties are deterred. So what Putin, what Moscow is trying to do is play on that fear, right? That what you are risking by continuing to support Ukraine, which Ukraine is risking by continuing to fight, is that very war, that existential war. Mm -hmm. So everything Russia has done to date suggests that they fear that at least as much as anybody else does. But they also want to use that fear that everybody has in order to change the equation. Now, is it going to work? No. Is there a risk they'll actually use nuclear weapons as a result of it? Yes, though I'd say for now it's still fairly small. But in terms of issuing these threats, I mean, I'd say for the most part, it's a sign of weakness, right? If you're issuing nuclear threats that you aren't sure are credible and you have to say, I'm not bluffing, that means you know that people aren't viewing your threats as credible. And it means that you don't have a whole lot of other options. What about Putin mentioned territorial integrity as something that could trigger the use of nuclear weapons? Is that in the doctrine? Because I always thought it was about the existence of the state, whereas integrity, especially when you're annexing pieces of a neighboring country, it gets a little dicey. Right. So I think there's always been some question about what exactly does Russia mean when it talks about the very existence of the state as uh, a reason that, you know, something that would justify the use of nuclear weapons. And the question of whether an attack onto Russian territory, something that would suggest that Russia's borders are about to change in some way, would that qualify as an existential threat? Nobody has answered that question. When Putin has talked about nuclear, had talked about nuclear use prior to February of this year, it was mostly in the context of if there is a strategic nuclear attack from really the United States on Russia, Russia will respond with, you know, what he described as a launch on warning. You know, we'll launch our weapons, launch our weapons in response if we're, we have a warning. What he's talking about now is clearly trying to play on the notion that Russia would use nuclear weapons if any of its territory were attacked. Now, look, you can tell a story about how a territorial attack on Russia would lead to this this global war, right? That once you're in a war where there are territorial attacks on Russia by an adversary that could threaten Russia's deterrent, Russia's deterrent is threatened, Russia's future is threatened. Russia might as well use nuclear weapons then. But it's a story. You've got several steps to get there. That any attack on Russian soil would trigger the use of nuclear weapons while Ukraine has hit Russian soil. So clearly that 
is not sufficient. But I do think that the idea is to try to set that idea in place to suggest that you're, you know, you're playing with with uh, thermonuclear fire here. Uh, that Russia would, def- you know, that this, we're going to claim this territory is Russian and we would then defend it. But, you know, they also claim Crimea as Russian and Ukraine has struck Crimea. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not going to be a threat that everybody looks at and says, oh, wow, this changes everything. Is the Russian military more comfortable with the idea of nuclear war than American military leaders? Like, does Moscow believe that limited nuclear use can occur without uncontrolled escalation? Because a lot of the American, when I think about it, actually, it's like, well, as soon as one, as soon as you fire one, well, then I'm just going to, everybody should just say their prayers because, you know, the rest are going to follow. But it sounds like that's potentially not the, the thinking in Moscow. And maybe, it, but well, whereas maybe it is in Washington. Like, So you're going to come across Russian, American, British, French, all sorts of other countries, uh, scholars and uh, government and former government personnel and military personnel who believe quite firmly that you can control escalation. And I can point you to Americans that make this argument. I can point you to Russians who make this argument. Some of these Americans have served in the Pentagon. So the idea that you, you, know, you can control escalation, that what you will do is you will go one step higher on the escalation ladder or lower or however you think the ladder works, and the adversary will go, oh, wow, they really are serious. I guess I will back down now. And if both sides think this, of course, this is how you blow up the world. Right. But you have people in everywhere that people think about nuclear weapons and escalation. You have people who make the argument that you can control escalation. So you can trace this in Russian writing. You can trace this in U.S. writing. You can also trace people who say this is insane. You can't control escalation. The Center for Naval Analyses, uh, Anya Fink, Mike Hoffman, Jeff Edmonds, and their team have done some work on kind of working through a lot of the Russian writing in military journals on this. And they make a case that you see the kind of the the pro-escalation control side winning, at least in that community. Does that mean that that's how the Russian military thinks about this? Does that mean that's how the Russian government thinks about this? That's a whole nother jump. And we flat out don't know. What we do know is they take it seriously, right? Uh, We also know that there has been a lot of thinking in Russian military circles about the dynamics of escalation from conventional to nuclear. They're more seized with it than kind of people writing in the United States have been in part because the U.S. has not been relying on its nuclear weapons as much to deter, so it's just less interesting to people to write about it. I actually have always found this super ridiculous. You've got people who are trying to calculate what level of damage is going to convince the adversary to back down like like it's a formula. Yeah. Guarantee you whatever else it is, it is not a formula that you're going to figure out in advance, uh, you know, major, colonel, whoever you are, wherever you happen to be. But there are people who are always convinced that this this can be done, that this this is an equation that can be solved. How much this has actually entered into the way the Russian military plans, I cannot tell you. So again, I can tell you that they take nuclear escalation seriously. I can tell you that from Putin's statements, he always puts an emphasis on the difficulty of controlling escalation. And that's part of the deterrence approach, Right. Once this starts, you can't control it. So how about we don't start it and you don't Mm -hmm. do whatever it is we don't want you to do or you stop doing whatever it is we want you to stop doing. 
So in terms of escalation control, the theorists or the military personnel that argue in favor of it, I mean, this is because I think this is a big question that a lot of people have is if it starts, if Moscow uses nuclear weapons preemptively, you know, to manage escalation, not as a response to some American attack or something like that, a nuclear attack, I mean, how would Russia actually go about it? Like who would it be all out? Would they fire everything or would they drop like a tactical? I mean, this is another question, like the difference between uh, non-strategic and strategic nuclear weapons and there's tactical nuclear weapons or those just non-strategic. Like, can you explain for people that are genuinely concerned about like, well, what happens first if they if they begin this process? Is there a sense of how they might begin? Okay, so do you want the how they might begin or do you want the tactical versus strategic first? Whatever whatever feels okay. more natural. <laughs> so there's no military logic to the use of nuclear weapons. So if Russia is launching a nuclear weapon, it is purely a coercive action to try to convince the adversary to back off. How do you do that? I mean, this is one of the reasons people think it's unlikely they'll do it, because what are you going to do? Are you going to, like, if, you're, if you hit Ukraine, if you hit a target in Ukraine, the wind is going to blow the radioactivity towards Russia. Aside from everything else that's going to happen, and Belarus, right? You know, are you going to, like, hang out there waiting for the wind to be blowing towards Poland and then launch? Uh, what if it changes direction? It's hard to predict the wind. You know, the idea is that, you know, you're going for broke. If we've decided that we're going down, so you're going down with us and we're willing to risk global thermonuclear war, but you still have one chance to back down after we have randomly launched a weapon at something. You'll have people talk about demonstration strikes, like EMP bursts or whatever, you know, or something that's in territory that's less populated, uh, you know, more remote. I don't see a lot of that when I read Russians talking about nuclear use, but, you know, it's it's all a giant mystery how you would use it, in part because there's no military logic to it. It's it's purely coercive. So pick your target. If they really think they're at risk of a full-blown nuclear war with the United States, they might launch their strategic arsenal, but we're a long, long way from that being a real risk. And they're all dirty, is that right, in terms of radioactivity? There's no such thing as a clean nuclear weapon? There is no. If it was clean, it would not be a nuclear weapon. I see. So it sounds like you're not in the school of thought that says that you can do managed escalation. I do not believe that any country currently on this earth Mm -hmm. has the capacity to confidently control escalation, except by arguably by deterring everybody else from doing anything at all. But what we've seen in this war is that you can deter only what your adversary thinks you're being credible about. And it's really hard to demonstrate that you're credible about things that you're not going to do. It's hard enough to demonstrate you're credible about things that you are going to do, right? So I think the great deterrence failure of this escalation since February was that Western states told Russia there would be huge sanctions if they launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And Russia seemed to have taken that threat about the same way that Western states took the threat of consequences such as you have never imagined. They didn't take it that seriously. Now, maybe if they had understood that those sanctions would in fact be imposed, they would have stood down. Maybe they wouldn't have. But I think the important thing here is that they just really didn't think the sanctions would be that bad. They've been that bad. So that's not a nuclear deterrence failure, but it is a deterrence failure. And it speaks to how difficult it is to communicate these threats in a way that your adversary knows when you mean it. 
Every time Vladimir Putin mentions nuclear weapons, we're left wondering if Russia's nuclear doctrine has changed. Has the threshold for resorting to these horrible weapons shifted? To find out more about Moscow's declaratory policies and military doctrine, I spoke to Dr. Mariana Bujarin, a senior research associate with the Project on Managing the Atom at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center. You know, in, in, in the discussions with Russian colleagues, you know, prior to the war and even since, security experts of various kinds in, in track two dialogues, often the image that was invoked was, you know, imagine Napoleon or World War II and Moscow is surrounded and basically it's about to fall. Then we can imagine Russia using uh, or threatening to use nuclear weapons in such a conventional war in order to prevent Moscow from being overtaken, for instance. But to threaten the use of nuclear weapons to protect territorial integrity, you know, freedom and independence of the Russian people that will now allegedly be considered by Russia to include these illegal annexed territories of Ukraine, that goes well beyond what we understood the Russian doctrine would be. And many of us have said, well, you know, Russia knowing the doctrine is, is very well, but do we have any confidence that Russian leaders would actually go by the doctrine? Military doctrine does not, as far as I know, does not include a war of aggression <laughs> against, uh, right. against a neighboring state, and that has been broken. So I think we have seen a significant nuclear escalation or escalation nuclear rhetoric I, for one, I, I am more worried. I'm a lot more worried now than before September 21st or before the early September when Ukrainians launched the counteroffensive about a tactical nuclear use in Ukraine. So you said a tactical nuclear use. This is, this is obviously a big question of exactly how Russia would, would use nuclear weapons if they decided to. And, and I wanted to ask you about what we expect in terms of Russian escalation management. I'm, I'm throwing around terms here that I've obviously, I've just become recently aware of. So if I'm misusing them, I, I apologize. But this, this gets to the difference between strategic and non-strategic and whether is tactical the same as non-strategic. Can you explain, I guess the basic question here is how would this presumably begin? Part of me is like, well, as soon as the thing, as soon as you start a nuclear war, it's just every missile launch and I'm getting like Hollywood pictures of like the you know, the, the rockets crossing over the Atlantic or something like this. But how do you theorize something like this would get started? So it is true that normally in the nuclear world and the world of nuclear weapons, we differentiate between strategic nuclear weapons and non-strategic nuclear weapons. And normally strategic, the, the notion of strategic is, is basically those capable of reaching the homeland of your main sort of nuclear adversary. So back in the day between the Soviet Union and the United States, it was really the strategic triad, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, right? The, the ranges of like 10, 15,000 kilometers. It's the, the strategic bombers that are capable of, of these long flights, often involving refueling, things like that. And it's the subs, right, that have these sea-launched ballistic missiles. And again, that force presumably is there to do just one thing, to deter, right? Because the fighting of a war with those, with those kind of forces, and often these missiles are tipped with, with incredible amount of nuclear megatonnage. 
often they have more than one warhead. ICBMs, the SS-18s have 10 or 12 warheads on one missile. When you talk about multiple warheads, I mean, I know that this is old stuff, but like it, it, they go up into the into space and orbit a bit, and then they what? They drop. They they yeah. They sort so of... basically, the missile launches all in one piece, right? It it kind of orbits the Earth as a, as a kind of satellite would, as it were, and then comes on this ballistic trajectory. And when it comes back down, this is my understanding, of course, which might not be exactly right. That this kind of the head part of it, the part containing warheads kind of opens up and splits and each one of the warheads are independently targeted so they can each you know they're not don't just like rain wherever they each have specific targets programmed into them and they can each reach those targets or intended to reach so there's like missiles missiles within missiles exactly exactly so the big the big icbm is just a delivery system it, it's there to propel and and push all of this, you know, load, payload closer to, to the enemy's or the adversary's territory. And then from there on, you have these independently targeted warheads. Now, because launching that kind of megatonnage is really, that's, where, that's kind of the scenarios of nuclear Armageddon. The, the understanding was that they're there only to threaten the adversary with a retaliatory strike so that adversary would not ever think of going first. And that's your basic concept of nuclear deterrence. The paradoxical thing about the strategic forces is they're there in order to never be used. They're not usable in the military sense. They're only there to prevent the other side from using their capability. And that relationship emerged when, you know, U.S. lost its nuclear monopoly, the Soviet Union, then others developed. And if there's more than one nuclear state, then in order for there to not be a nuclear war, they have to do this kind of paradox. And it is, you know, whether we choose to believe that that's how it might work is a different thing. But that's kind of in theory what these strategic forces are meant to be. But of course, you have to appear as if like you're credible, right? As if you really, when the push comes to shove, you really would press that button, the proverbial button. And that's kind of a hard thing to do with strategic. Now, the non-strategic ones, the word developed, they're smaller, lower yield. They are sort of more, as it were, comparable to more powerful conventional weapons. They're shorter ranges. So they call them tactical, even battlefield, because both at one, you know, through the 60s and 70s, both NATO and the Soviet Union developed a bunch of these nuclear weapons, artillery shells, short range ballistic missiles, even nuclear mines. I mean, things like, you know, weaponry to use on the battlefield. And there were operational plans for doing that, you know, on both sides. Because, you know, on the NATO side, it was understood that the Soviet Union has such a such a powerful conventional military that if Russian tanks started rolling across the Fulda Gap in Germany, NATO couldn't contain that. So it, it would have had to, to use some kind of nuclear munition to fight that back. They've turned, I guess. Now it's Russia that fears conventional. So, you know, uh, in the West, that there, there are maybe, what, 200 or so 
tactical, basically, nuclear weapons or nuclear weapons deployed on the NATO side, U.S. nuclear weapons deployed in Europe. But Russia, on its own territory, has close to 2,000 of these tactical nuclear weapons. Allegedly, they're non-deployed. So they're in what, what is called central storage facilities. And central here really means that it's not in the custody of the units that might use them, but in the custody of the Ministry of Defense. So that's all it means. It doesn't mean that it's somewhere in the center geographically. They're in these so-called object as storage facilities. And one of them is, for instance, in Belgorod, which is, you know, only 30 miles from the Ukrainian border. Uh, Ukraine You're getting shelled occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ukraine, when Ukraine inherited you know, a bunch of both tactical and strategic nuclear weapons after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Ukraine had at least three of these object S storage facilities where, you know, you would drive these these warheads, nuclear warheads, store them there. And, the, and then the 12th Gumo, the main directorate, 12th main directorate of the Ministry of Defense would sort of pick them up and, and they would be in their custody and they would transport them to wherever they needed to be. So allegedly, these Russian non-strategic nuclear weapons are now in these storage facilities, which in a way <laughs> is a good thing because, you know, the analysts think maybe it will give the Western intelligence services and will give people some time to see if there's any movement around those facilities. Because, of course, you know, <laughs> we know where they are and I'm sure there are eyes on them at all times. So if there is any movement, if there's trucks leaving and they're delivering something to the delivery vehicles, such as, for instance, Iskandaram short-range ballistic missile that has also been used in Ukraine with conventional munition, or Kijal, you know, this new hypersonic cruise missile, also Kaliber, the sea-based cruise missiles, all of those are dual-capable systems. So you can have that missile in the launch system. And you just put a nuclear, you know, you just put a missile with a nuclear warhead on them. They're capable of working with the, with both. So that's kind of the danger of, you know, those those delivery vehicles already there, those delivery mm-hmm. systems. They're already working to deliver to target Ukrainian Ukrainian facilities. It's just a matter of getting the nuclear warhead to them. And with the early warning indicate whether you're looking at a strategic or non-strategic missile? Yeah, that would normally be the case because normally strategic warheads are already there, you know, on the missile or on the submarine. They're kind of mated and kept together for the most part, but not for tactical nuclear weapons. So there would be some warning, I don't know, hours, days. (laughs) Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure. And in that space, hopefully, there might be time to react or to communicate something to Russia more explicitly to try and dissuade it from using these weapons, yeah. right, or, or pre- prevent it somehow. The whole battlefield situation is, is, again, not very credible simply because it's not very practical. Because even the military folks back in in the 70s, realized that it would create more problems on the battlefield than actually solve them. And even though, you know, both sides made very, very detailed and explicit plans for using these weapons in in a combat type of situation to break through the reinforced enemy positions, that was kind of calculations of how many, of what kind and of what yield you would need 
per mile of, of the front of the line of contact, yeah. there was also realization that would be, it would complicate the battlefield more than it would aid anything. One of the things that strikes me about Russian rhetoric, both from government officials and just from in, in sort of think tanks in Moscow and so on, anybody commenting, foreign policy experts and so on, at the center of a lot of their arguments seems to be the faith or the confidence that Russia has more at stake here and therefore victory is inevitable because they can simply escalate the risk beyond what U.S. interests are at stake. And so that gives confidence that it's just a matter of time. I think maybe there's a shift at, there's a shift in the Western perception now that Ukraine qua Ukraine as just a country might not be of such huge strategic importance. But to allow something like that to take place on Ukrainian territory and not do anything about it puts the entire kind of credibility of Western international order, of the, the kind of rules that we put in place, their validity, right? Are we willing to put our money where a mouth has been since 1945? So I think that's a real kind of test for how much of that was a hypocrisy and how much you really are willing to stand up for something. Because it's a very clearly a just war for Ukrainians, mm -hmm. right? It's a war of defense that's being invaded for no good reason at all under all sorts of false pretenses. And I think in this sense, also because Ukrainians have surprised so many in the West with you know, a capable defense in their own right, clearly with Western arms, clearly with Western intelligence. But they're proving actually that they're not the ramshackle military that they were back in 2014. And they're proving that they could also be a security asset for the West, right? You know, no other country has fought Russia and here, here are Ukrainians are doing that. So I think there is, there is perhaps, you know, a lot will ride on, on how this will end. But I think there is a definitely a shift in Western perception and also the danger of leaving kind of these really important chunks right. in this tense security situation, leaving these vacuums because something will move in. If Russia does use, let's say, a tactical nuclear weapon, and let's assume that it's on Ukrainian soil, I mean, I suppose they could also, you know, do it over the North Pole or something, but if we assume they use it against Ukrainian targets, because that seems to be the most likely of the of the horrible scenarios, I suppose, in terms of the threats, what do you expect the NATO response to be? Obviously, they have options, but what what would you anticipate? So on the on the Russian side, as you say, it could be a demonstration shot, say, over the Black Sea for kind of the psychological effect rather than the actual military effect. There's been a longstanding problem with these demonstration shots. It was considered actually by the US in 1945 and Japan, like, what if, what if it doesn't make an impression? What if nobody sees it? What if it's a dud, right? What if it's, what if it actually all it shows is that you're not willing to use it actually in a battle. All you're willing to do is to use it over the Black Sea, but you're like demure from using it on target. So it's not going to have that kind of effect, but you have broken something important. You have broken nuclear taboo. And, and now all these negative consequences will still apply, but you achieve nothing. So that those are kind of the considerations of, of the demonstration shot. In terms of military targets, there really are not many on Ukrainian territory that could 
you know, present themselves as a suitable target for a nuclear strike. Ukrainians do not have these really heavily fortified positions. They are nimble force. They, they move a lot. They try to avoid huge concentration of forces, you know, for other reasons, some kind of large military bases, you know, I don't know. To use it on the city, that would really be, that would be really bad. And again, that would not undermine Ukrainian military capacity, right? Because, you know, wouldn't have particularly military effect. It would mm-hmm. only make Ukrainians so much more pissed off and so much more resolved and so much more motivated. And then again, without achieving any military aims, you will have encountered all the negative consequences that could possibly ensue because you've broken, you've crossed a really, really important red line. So, you know, whether the support of China, of India, of the global South that for now have been either supportive or sitting on the fence, and, and supporting Russian economy through through trade as well, no less, whether that would automatically go away is kind of a big question. And I, I suggest probably a good point of leverage from on behalf of the global South so that they could maybe step up their act and also communicate to Russia some of these red lines. On the part of NATO, there has been a lot of discussion on what exactly could be a credible and suitable response. I think at the very least, you will see that Ukrainians will never lack for another weapon ever again, right? That what Ukrainians will ask, they will get. For now, each new armament has been carefully considered for what escalatory risks, you know, it presents where Ukrainians can use it on what targets, et cetera. I think all of these limitations will be off. Ukrainians will still be the fighting, the main fighting force, but the level of Western military support will grow exponentially. I think, you know, Russia will be completely cut off in every kind of extent possible from global markets, from any sort of trade and cooperation. Um, And I think there might be even another level would be some kind of conventional response, either a conventional strike against some of these bases and facilities from which, for instance, these nuclear strikes were carried out. So the um, Iskander bases or, you know, the ships with calibers or the Air Force bases or whatever, those might be taken out with kind of NATO strikes. Although, again, you know, NATO has been very careful not to get involved directly. So it's possible that a, a nuclear attack against Ukraine would trigger a direct NATO response, but just a conventional right. one is what you're saying. So that, that would be NATO's attempt to respond, but not escalate in a nuclear right. way. Right. Yeah, I think there would, there's and then still it would be a up much to, longer. Be up to Russia. Yeah. Russia would have to decide, okay, does this, this direct attack, does that provoke more nuclear response or do we respond with more conventional? And like that, then it's kind of the balls yeah. back in their court, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's for them to escalate. And the thing is, now, NATO, of course, has the conventional dominance, right? It's conventionally superior. It has better, more modern, more precise weaponry in Europe, but also, you know, to be, <laughs> to be forward deployed. So if it picks a conventional conflict with NATO, it's not a good thing for Russia. It, it really isn't. And with the nuclear threshold crossed, what else can Russia really threaten with a nuclear strike on NATO, well, NATO also has a deterrent, right? So then then you really are um, 
then you're getting into the escalation into spiral. the escalation spiral. But you know, these are these are kind of tentative thoughts that we really don't we really don't know. But that's kind of the scary bit. That really very difficult to calculate what might be moves and counter moves. But we know that you know the West uh, has communicated more ambiguously in public, but perhaps more specifically right. in private with Moscow, what exactly this, the crossing of a nuclear threshold might mean. We don't really know many, but for that matter, it's kind of, I've been thinking about it. It's it's not really the, so much the workings of deterrence or reestablishing deter, nuclear deterrence as the enforcement of a nuclear taboo. Right. What I what is the West willing to do? Because of, the West has no nuclear deterrence obligations towards Ukraine. Ukraine has no deterrence of its no deterrent of its own, nor is it part of a nuclear armed alliance. So US cannot or NATO cannot credibly threaten a nuclear retaliatory strike. It might still choose to do it, but it's you know It's not treaty bound. Yeah, it's not treaty bound. And I don't think, you know, I don't think it, it would be neither prudent nor really logical no possible or credible for NATO to threaten nuclear retaliation on Ukraine's behalf. But the big question is, if that's not the case, then what are you willing to do? What is possible to do in this situation to enforce the nuclear taboo, right? The taboo against nuclear use. And I don't think we really have a very good answer to it. <laughs> One of the advantages that it seems Russian columnists, or maybe this is true for politicians and military experts as well, but they believe that they have the advantage because they are dealing with existential threats. I mean, that's how they present it. I don't know to what degree we view that as credible, because as you've said, there have been attacks on Russian soil and on annexed Russian soil, and those will presumably escalate now that they're claiming more disputed territory. So what they say isn't necessarily always the case, but... It does seem like there's a consensus view that this conflict matters more for Russians than it does for Americans. And the fact that they're threatening nuclear war is you know, some indication of that, I suppose, but it's also an indication of weakness, as you pointed out. But it, it seems like they, they view the stakes as higher than Washington does. Now, how does the United States manage that kind of disparity in existential stakes? Because presumably that means that if, if Russia continues to threaten risks that outweigh U.S. interests, at some point, it would only be logical for the Americans to say, well, you know, this isn't worth it anymore. Or, I mean, assuming they at some point believe it's not bluffing. What's the decision making that that should happen then for Americans? So the, the problem here is that the Russians have sort of undermined their argument that they have more at stake here than the West does by claiming territory in Europe that isn't theirs, territory mm. they're not even actually occupying. If you're European and you look at that, you say, well, this country really is a pretty huge threat to European security and to my security. And the United States has security commitments to an awful lot of the countries of Europe. So what the Russians have done is they've increased the United States' stake with the actions they've taken. It's not Mm -hmm. just about Ukraine. It's about European security. And European security has been seen as existential by the United States in the past. You could argue that maybe it shouldn't be, but good luck selling that to any American administration, except Uh maybe the Trump administration, (laughs) and they're not currently in office. So 
I think this is kind of one of the interesting dynamics is that we have gone from a situation where Russia views Ukraine as existential and the United States and the West don't to a situation where Russia has made the war in Ukraine kind of sort of maybe existential for everybody else. Mm -hmm. And look, what they would probably do fundamentally if Russia used a nuclear weapon is respond with a conventional weapon, maybe on Russian forces in Ukraine, maybe on Russian territory. And this is how they would try to manage escalation, right? They would try to manage escalation in response by demonstrating that, yes, we will fight, but no, we don't want to make this even uglier. And you know perfectly well just how bad this can get. So isn't this a nice time to back away, which is not a stupid thing to do, right? I mm -hmm. think that's actually a pretty good way to respond, but it's not guaranteed to work. Right. It's a much better way to respond than kind of the keep upping the ante on the escalation ladder, which is how you end up with everyone dead. And in theory, I suppose the Kremlin could then turn around and say, see, they didn't escalate. We scared them. Even if they ended up getting hit with a huge conventional strike, they could say they didn't, they don't dare go nuclear. With well, you know what? You could always claim your, your failure <laughs> to be a victory. Um, do you think that's, is that, tr is that true? Is that because of the control over the media or is it just the... I don't know. Countries declare victory and retreat all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how you end wars is right. uh, countries declare victory and retreat. Right. Uh, their publics may or not, may or not believe that. Yeah. But I don't think Vladimir Putin thinks that, I mean, this is... He's definitely trying to make the case that this is existential for him. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. The other question is whether we're supposed to, we should view this as existential for Russia and Russians versus the regime and maybe him personally. Well, he's making it existential yeah. for Russia and Russians, even if it is really existential yeah. just for him. That's right. not unusual, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think back to the 1930s when the Soviet Union was trying to make a case for collective security against Nazi Germany. And the French were kind of, sort of, maybe a little nervous, maybe interested. And the Brits were kind of like, yeah, nope, not doing that. And the reason the Brits were more comfortable, honestly, dealing with Nazi Germany than the Soviet Union was they saw Nazi Germany as a potential military threat, but the Soviet Union as bent on regime change hmm. because the Soviet Union wanted to put communism everywhere, including right. in the United Kingdom. So... The British government saw that it's more dangerous. Now, is that an existential threat to the United Kingdom? Um, they thought so. And for that reason, they saw the Soviet Union as more dangerous than Nazi Germany. Right. So it's not unusual to view the threat of regime change as an existential threat. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. On today's show, you heard from two experts on nuclear weapon strategy and nuclear crises, Dr. Olga Oliker, the Program Director for Europe and Central Asia at the International Crisis Group in Brussels, and Dr. Mariana Bujeran, a Senior Research Associate with the Project on Managing the Atom at the Harvard Kennedy School Belfer Center. Thanks for tuning in. On future episodes of the show, we'll be discussing the impact of sanctions on Russian commercial aviation, the future of Chechnya's dictatorship, the potential impact of a Taiwan crisis on the war in Ukraine, and much, much more. Thank you, and see you next week. Mm -hmm.